Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and the publisher of the FinTech Business Weekly newsletter, Jason Mikula. Mr. Mikula, welcome back. Hey, thanks for uh, having me, as always. Uh, I feel like I just saw you, like, recently, days ago, even. Uh, Jason and I have been making the uh, podcast circuits lately, and apparently we are something of a, uh, a match set. So uh, if you hear us on some uh, additional podcasts, don't be too alarmed if you're listening in the fintech universe. And uh, that also reminds me that we will also uh, be doing a session together at the fintech meetup conference coming up in a couple weeks in Las Vegas. Jason, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person. That's right. And you get two for the price of one because my fellow Netherlands resident. Marcel Van Oost is also joining that panel. So definitely looking forward to that and some hopefully warmer weather in Vegas in just about a month's time. Also, listeners are probably aware I recently dropped a 31-page Banking as a Service report. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out yet, you can find it on my Substack or LinkedIn. And I think we actually are not talking about banking as a service today. Alex, what are we kicking it off with uh, this month? That is a great segue, Jason. So we are kicking it off with buy now, pay later. Maybe our favorite topic, if we had to like skinny it all the way down to like one that we could just talk endlessly about, right? It is. I mean, my OG post that I really felt like I broke out on was explaining the difference between point of sale lending and the sort of pay and for formulation. And here we are two and a half years later, and we're still talking about BNPL. So. We, we are. We are indeed. And there are, are two big stories that I thought kind of fit together as it relates to buy now, pay later. The first of which is that a firm recently uh, reported some quarterly earnings and, you know, there's really no other way to say it. They had a horrible, horrible quarter, you know, investors who were watching the company, I think, had pretty low expectations in terms of the performance that a firm was going to report. And a firm actually managed to come in underneath those projections. And obviously, the the impact on its stock has not been great. The company, I think, anticipating that did make the decision, unfortunately, to lay off 19% of its employees, which is a, a very significant cut. And you know, it was interesting just looking at the sort of headline news around this. It seems like what happened was that this is really where a lot of the um, sort of COVID pandemic related hangovers for a firm really caught up to them. You know, their loss reserves increased. And I think, you know, firm has been pretty, pretty careful about underwriting even, um, you know, over the last year or two. But, uh, you know, loss reserves are continuing to creep up as people are concerned about the economy. That definitely impacted a firm. Maybe more significantly, the cost of funding for the loans that that a firm gives went up dramatically. Um, and again, that's really connected to the rising rate environment and the fact that a firm doesn't have, you know, any other sort of cheap sources of deposits or funding for its loans. So it has to, you know, go out to the market and get these loans in order to fund its balance sheet. And that's getting more and more expensive. And then finally, I think the most interesting thing to me was that a firm, unlike a lot of other consumer lenders that have obviously been raising their interest rates and the cost to borrow from them significantly in order to sort of match this funding environment that we're in, a firm's pricing has not increased as much as you might think to match its increased funding costs. And, you know, they talked a little bit about that on their earnings call. And the takeaway seems to be that for a firm, because it's an embedded 
lender, meaning that its product is embedded within the merchant checkout pages of its partners, it didn't have the same sort of direct control to be able to quickly increase interest rates and sort of the general cost of borrowing, because all of those things are determined on something of an individual basis with its different merchant partners. And apparently that takes a little bit longer to adjust. And so while its pricing has not come up, its costs have come up, and the net net of it is that it's been really, really hard for a firm. So they have cut their employee base, obviously. And they are really trying to focus on sort of core initiatives that are going to increase their uh, unit economics. And so they maybe not surprisingly got out of crypto. I actually didn't even realize that they were in crypto, but whatever crypto initiatives they had, they decided to cut. They're still focused on their debit plus product and then just sort of continuing to expand on the kind of their core product set. So that was one big piece of news. The other one, and Jason, I want you to sort of comment on the totality of this, but I think this the other half of the coin, and you actually talked about this in your most recent newsletter, is that Apple is still getting ready for Apple Pay Later, its own Buy Now Pay Later product. Originally, it was supposed to launch last year. Uh, It was delayed for reasons that we're still not totally clear on, but apparently it's now being tested with Apple employees. The first product that's going to be launching as a part of its own sort of uh, breakout initiative where it's doing its own underwriting. They're still working a little bit with Goldman Sachs and MasterCard for access to the card rails. But functionally, this is an Apple product that's funded off of their balance sheet and that's originated using state lending licenses that they've gone out and acquired themselves. In terms of how it's going to work, you know, it's incorporating spend history with Apple and even like the Apple device information. So Apple's sort of adding its own sort of underwriting layer on top of what you would consider sort of traditional underwriting. The user experience is a little bit different than like in a firm or something else and that you're applying upfront for a requested amount and then you have a sort of valid offer that's available to you for up to 30 days. Reporting on it indicates that it's all going to be sort of sub $1,000. So that's kind of the range that they're looking at. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because Apple is coming into this market I personally think this is taking a pretty big regulatory risk, given how I know Director Chopra at the CFPB feels about big tech companies and sort of them getting into financial services. I've always been very surprised that Apple's doing this, and particularly in this sort of worsening economic environment where the shine has sort of come off of Buy Now, Pay Later, I, I'm surprised that they seem to still be going full speed. So, Jason, I don't know, what do you think kind of 30,000 foot levels going on in the BNPL space, and what do you think about these pieces of news? The most obvious starting point to me is, you know, we're seeing the credit cycle begin to turn, right? And that's clearly showing up in a firm's data. And this is the challenge of being a non-bank lender. You have much less flexibility than if you have your own balance sheet, right? And we've seen that uh, sort of at the other end of the spectrum with players like Lending Club who have become banks and can sort of operate across using their own funds as well as that, you know, securitization or whole loan sale market. So they have sort of more flexible options where if they want to originate a loan, hold it on their balance sheet, keep the interest income, they can do that. If the market is favorable to sell it, free up that capital and go out and originate more, they can do that as well. So, I mean, I think the Affirm story really illustrates that in a highly cyclical business like consumer credit, 
you know, if you're a non-bank lender, you know, it's a question of when will that cycle turn, not if it turns. And of course, you know, we've been in a, I don't need to remind anybody that we've been in a very unusual economic climate, really for the better part of, you know, 15 years since 2008, but certainly during the course of the pandemic craze that helped power trends like, you know, getting your Peloton and using some very cheap 0% financing from a firm to spread out those payments. I mean, I actually, uh, it was the first time I dug pretty deeply into a firm's quarterly filing. And to be honest, it was hard to find a bright spot. You know, whether you were looking at the top line, bottom line, as you, you pointed out, you know, low loss provisions, and cost of funds were the major drivers. But even the number of merchants it has was actually down slightly from the prior quarter. I mean, I guess you could maybe point to something like, you know, almost 20% of its transactions were originated on its own website or app instead of at point of sale. So a lot of the companies in this BNPL space are trying to grow slash reduce dependence on third-party mer merchants. So I guess you could say that that's one, you know, bright-ish spot. It's reduced its dependence on Peloton and 0%, which has become increasingly untenable as the cost of funds have risen. So only 10%. Although it's not like Peloton is, you know, Peloton's not exactly out there like selling a ton of bikes either. So when you reduce dependency on it, like that's more jumping off a boat before it sinks. But yeah, I mean, looking through its quarterly earnings presentation, it was just really difficult to find any kind of bright spot. And like you, I had no idea that a firm had any kind of crypto business. I don't really understand why it had one. <laughs> but I guess uh, with uh, all of these markets turning, you know, crypto, maybe we'll, we'll get to later in the show today, decided that it was a distraction from their core project and appropriately reduce that. I mean, the Apple Pay or Apple Pay Later side, you know, it's interesting. And I feel like we've probably talked about this before, but I mean, Apple has a very long time horizon in a way that arguably no other company really does, right? I mean, if you think of its partner for Apple Card, Goldman Sachs, you know, Goldman you know, I have argued previously, had a much longer runway than a, you know, fintech VC-backed startup would have, where you're going to raise money maybe every 12, 18 months would be a more sort of normal capital raise cycle. You know, Goldman had the benefit of its own balance sheet of funding internally, but, you know, four, five, six years on, and the market investors, you know, seem to have lost patience with Goldman's consumer forays. And, and you've seen that play out there with the ambitions, you know, uh, reducing substantially as far as what they're planning on doing there. Apple, you know, the trajectory of something like Apple Pay, you know, particularly in the United States, adoption of it has been arguably lackluster for the better part of a decade. But because Apple mints so much money, in a sense, it almost didn't matter. And it allowed them to play this sort of slow and steady race where Apple Pay now has become, you know, especially outside of the US, but even in the US, uh, sort of a material force in the payment space. Apple Pay later, you know, I think the 30,000 foot view, if I can like zoom back off of all of this detail I just dumped on you guys, maybe the timing isn't the best, 
right? Given the overall sort of like credit cycle, like would I want to be launching a new credit product, not just a new credit product, but for a company that's really never done consumer credit itself, would I want to launch that right now? Not really. But on the flip side, Apple has shown, I think, immense patience and dedication to the larger project of essentially, depending on how charitable you want to be, creating more convenience and more consumer touch points, or on the flip side, aggressively locking users into its ecosystem. And, you know, I think Apple Pay and moving more into the credit savings stack, you know, both on its own, as you pointed out from some of the project breakout capabilities, as well as with partners where needed, it really is further cementing Apple's prominence, dominance in people's day-to-day lives. Will they come to regret from a regulatory perspective, some of the increased scrutiny, I feel almost certain that they will draw. I guess time will tell on that one. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I think the thing I'm kind of zooming out like you, the thing I'm sort of thinking about at a macro level is just like, how much sense does buy now pay later make as a consumer lending product category, just generally, right? Because like, obviously, point of sale financing, not new. And you could make the argument that what Apple's doing with Apple Pay Later is more akin to sort of traditional point of sale financing in some ways. And so maybe it's just a nice sort of add-on. Maybe it helps them sell more of their sort of core products and services. Maybe they take a little bit better margin on it because they're doing it sort of off of their own balance sheet and using their own lending licenses. But functionally, it's just sort of an extension of kind of traditional payment mechanisms. With a firm, I think they're a really interesting company in that I, I've always sort of admired how they've run their business. That, like I said before, they're pretty sharp about underwriting, and I don't think they've gotten way, way out over their skis in terms of underwriting and loan loss provisions, even though those have gone up. But it's a really interesting kind of going to your point about like, I didn't even know they launched crypto. Why did they launch crypto? Like, it seems like at a macro level, a firm had a window of time with 0% interest rates and with merchants, you know, needing any way to drive more sales, that the explosion of e-commerce, that they could have sort of used buy now, pay later as like a wedge into a much broader relationship with consumers. But they couldn't quite get there in the time that they had, right? They tried to sort of launch the Debit Plus product. It's still not out. They're still working on it. I kind of found that comment interesting in the Affirm earnings call that like that's a big priority for them and something they're working on because I I thought they had been working on it for a while. So I was kind of surprised to hear that like, oh yeah, that's still coming. We're still very focused on it. Like that's a little weird and almost indicative of maybe the fact that they... I don't know, took their core business, which was booming, and took all of the sort of resulting momentum from that and spread it out across too many different things rather than really having like a concentrated strategy for this is what we're going to become. Because I think, you know, something that probably wasn't too hard to see coming was when we stopped being in a zero interest rate environment, which was going to happen eventually. Who knows if it was always going to happen quite this quickly or that, you know, we were going to have to sort of fight inflation to quite this degree, quite so severely. But like we weren't going to be in this low interest rate environment forever. And it seems like it was always pretty clear that when that stopped being true, 
a lot of the things that are sort of fundamentally valuable about buy now, pay later, 0% interest rates, using that as a wedge to sort of drive consumer behavior at the point of checkout, using it to drive incremental sales for the merchant, using that value prop for merchants to justify really high fees that are significantly higher than interchange, like that whole model, which is what was driving a firm's repeat customers and the building of their brand, none of that really works when you're not in a zero interest rate environment, right? And so I guess the question I sort of have moving into whatever this next environment is, is to what degree is buy now, pay later an attractive product category? Is it attractive for standalone companies? Like if you were starting a new consumer lending company, would you start it in buy now, pay later? Or would you start it somewhere else? How attractive is it for these sort of larger existing entities like Apple or even banks that have kind of dipped their toes in buy now, pay later? And I kind of get the sense they're not super enthusiastic about it anymore. And, you know, how attractive is it to consumers when you're shopping online and probably you are trying to trim back on your expenses, maybe because you're a little nervous about the economy as well. Maybe you have a credit card. Maybe you don't. If you're in a firm customer, you probably at least qualify for a credit card. And you know, you're not necessarily getting these 0% interest offers at the point of sale. So like, how attractive is buy now, pay later moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I don't think a firm or some of the other players where that is the, I'm going to use one of my least favorite business terms, where that's the tip of their spear. I don't know if that's the position I would want to be in. The fintech playbook that we've seen again and again across different categories is identify one specific product or feature that's orders of magnitude, hopefully, better than what exists that becomes the wedge feature to attract people and then gradually build a full stack offering and attempt emphasis on attempt to cross sell and get your users to adopt those other features other products to increase lifetime value or average revenue per user right that's what we've seen with peer-to-peer payments venmo and cash app very different levels of success, I think. That's what we've seen with SoFi, going in with a private student loan refi, and then essentially trying to leverage that into a full-stack banking relationship. And that seems to be the direction that a firm was trying to move with its Debit Plus offering. It has a savings account in partnership with an underlying bank partner. I did just squeeze in a Bass reference, so there you go. But it would almost seem that they're feature velocity has not been fast enough and focused enough even in in executing against that and or the customer base that a firm historically has focused on which is a little bit higher credit quality than maybe your split pay products i mean a firm for a long time was a personal loan originated at point of sale it only expanded into the pay and for model much more recently when that sort of blew up during the pandemic these are customers who maybe are less in need and thus less receptive to some of these additional potential cross-sell features and products versus, say, a Cash App user who's maybe underbanked, maybe has difficulty accessing credit or has had difficulty maintaining a quote-unquote traditional bank account. You can see there where it's like, okay, if the entry point is P2P payment, oh, I keep a balance here, oh, I can get a debit card oh, you have investing, you have small loans, you can see that 
hangs together a little bit more coherently than I used a firm to buy my Peloton and what, now I'm opening an IRA there? So yeah, I think there may be some challenging times ahead for particularly the segments that we're focusing on higher earners and or higher credit quality who just have a lot more choices and the utility may be less persuasive, less sticky as the rate environment changes. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I go back to to Apple as well, right? I mean, Apple's, I think, another example of, I don't think, I mean, Ed, to your point, they have ample cash on hand. I, they have a lot of lawyers. And so while I think they will be dealing with some regulatory headaches, it's not like they can't prepare for that and vigorously sort of defend the borders of what they're doing in case regulators get interested in it. I think that's all probably going to be fine. But I think the sort of larger question for Apple is, like, is this going to be worth it? You know what I mean? Like, they sort of, I think, probably got the idea that we need to have an, a buy now, pay later product when buy now, pay later was really booming. And it looked like, you know, oh, buy now, pay later is like the new credit card. Like, it's like if we don't offer this, we're not offering the types of add-on financial services that our customers, particularly younger customers who are also sort of wealthier and that we really want to sort of keep in our ecosystem, we're not offering the type of consumer lending that they want. And I think that it was easy to look at the explosion of buy now, pay later over the last couple of years and sort of come away from that thinking, man, Gen Z loves buy now, pay later. Like this must just be the way they like to shop and it fits into the e-commerce experience and they've never used credit cards. But like, why would they like credit cards when they have something like buy now, pay later? And I think that the thing I'm sort of coming around to is credit cards are a enduring value proposition, right? Like we know what that value proposition is. We know how it works across multiple parts of the credit cycle and in different stages of the economy. We know that young people go from not liking credit cards or getting credit cards at all to loving credit cards. That's been the millennial experience. That was the Gen X experience before that. Like We know that that's true. And in contrast to that, I think a sort of almost anthropological question I have about buy now, pay later is, does it end up sort of sticking as a preferred payment or lending product for any category of consumers when it's not being basically given away for free to people. And I don't know the answer to that, but I think that like if I'm Apple, the thing I worry about with buy now, pay later is we've gone through all this effort to launch this product. We've done so in a way that's going to give us better margins than we've gotten historically on some of the other things we've done in financial services. But we might have done all of this work to prepare to launch a consumer lending product category that just is kind of eh in terms of how it performs in the market because they're not I mean they're not going to give it away in terms of like the cost unless it's to subsidize the purchase of Apple products but like broadly speaking as a lending product you know they're not going to take a loss on it there's no reason for them to do that and so if they don't like is it attractive or are consumers just going to pay with debit cards and credit cards and the things they've already been doing I mean, there's certainly some unanswered questions here, but from what I understood about the user experience that, that you summarized was quite different than the way that sort of classic BNPL really got a lot of traction, right? And to get more of our buzzwords into today's episode, <laughs> um, the notion of embedded finance and, okay, I'm shopping at like H&M. And this just happens to be an offer that appears in the right place at the right time that requires minimal or possibly no additional work from the purchaser to use it. 
Like that was sort of the like secret sauce yeah. that really made BNPL like explode. Mm-hmm. If I have to, and this is, to be clear, speculation based on the reporting, I think it was in Bloomberg, but if I have to, in advance, open my Apple wallet, check my essentially like credit limit slash, you know, purchasing power, Mm -hmm. get an offer, and then I'm guessing it would essentially be spinning up a virtual card that you would then use to make that purchase, that breaks the UX, to put it very bluntly. Now, Apple obviously has, you know, trillions of dollars and very talented designers and engineers, etc. But the merchant-led distribution really was like the killer app of BNPL. And when you take that away, I'm just, I'm really curious to see how well this performs. I mean, actually, as a firm demonstrates, like some people are willing to make that a destination. Like, I use a firm for everything. I'm going to open up the app and I'm going to shop at merchants because they partner with a firm. And this has been replicated or... It's a shopping portal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Klarna has the exact same strategy. Even with that, four out of five sales at a firm are happening at a merchant, right? So I'll be very curious to see once Apple's BNPL launches, what does that UX actually look like? And then... As a result of what that experience is, who's using it and how are they using it? But from all the indications we have, it does sound like it's going to be quite a different go-to-market strategy than what you've seen in, call it, like, classic BNPL. Yeah, well, and the irony of all of that is that Apple actually has the best way in to the user experience and that a lot of it happens on the device, right? And so, I mean, if you've ever shopped in an e-commerce scenario, like on an iPhone, the ability when Apple Pay is a checkout option to be able to do that and have it connect to your biometrics on your device and fill in all of your shipping information and the payment happens really fast, like that's really seamless. And in a way, I would think it would give Apple a potential mechanism to get into that e-commerce sort of checkout page environment where you could just link it to Apple Pay. But you're right, the reporting Mm -hmm. suggests that there is more work in advance that consumers have to do. And you're right. I mean, that's the opposite of how buy now, pay later has traditionally gotten traction. The way it's gotten traction is, hey, free money, like basically, and just sort of surprising young consumers with free money at the point of checkout. That's how it has worked. And so having it be a more deliberate strategy, if I'm going into Apple's wallet and sort of designating how I want to pay for stuff, I'm probably going to put my credit card in there that I'm getting points on and that I want to sort of consolidate all my spending on and then just get the UX benefits of Apple Pay being incorporated into the checkout page, but with the credit card as the payment mechanism rather than buy now, pay later. So I think that'll be an interesting question as to like functionally, what is the funding source that gets loaded into Apple Pay if it indeed ends up working that way? So no, that's fascinating. I mean, I'm also, you know, one last comment is I'm curious to see how the customer service and particularly around delinquencies and defaults or, or even potentially fraud is is handled collections the thing you don't want to do yeah yeah because i mean i guess in a sense they have that brand risk now but it is goldman currently for the credit card who handles servicing payments, delinquencies, collections, and all of that. It's, it's not done by Apple itself. And I'll be curious to see what, if any, blowback there is, or even if 
just sort of their ability to handle that volume of potential customer interaction. You know, it, it for anyone who's had a fraudulent charge on their credit card or worked at a consumer lender and listened to phone calls of people who can't afford to pay their bill, you know, calling up or more realistically getting called by collections, you know, it can be a pretty unpleasant experience for everyone involved. And, you know, Apple sort of has this reputation as a kind of like white glove, friendly customer service, go above and beyond. It can be difficult to reconcile that with, you know, telling people to pay their bill. <laughs> Even things like the other thing that reminds me of is like buy now, pay later with returns, right? Like processing returns with buy now, pay later is really painful, right? Because like you're not totally sure how many payments you've made and like the lender needs to get confirmation that the item's been returned before they can refund you the amount that you've already paid. So it's kind of messy and it's a little bit bespoke to each buy now, pay later provider in terms of how they handle returns with their merchants. Even something like that, not even getting into collections and fraud is going to be a bit of a headache, I would think, for Apple to have to deal with directly. So I, I think you're exactly right. And it uh, wouldn't surprise me if behind the scenes, they're staffing up that particular segment of the operation quite a bit. Um, should we jump to the next topic? Yeah, let's try to lightning around a couple more in here. I saw a spicy headline in The Economist asking, are we in crypto's Dodd-Frank moment? I'll admit I actually did not read that article, but I think the direction was there has been a lot of enforcement activity developments in recent weeks. Just to run through a couple, Kraken reached a settlement with the SEC. The New York DFS ordered Paxos to stop issuing its stablecoin, which is actually branded confusingly as the Binance USD or BUSD. Separately, the SEC sent a Wells notice to Paxos saying it's considering taking action on the premise that BUSD stablecoin is a security. Custodia had its application for a Fed master account denied, and there's an ongoing lawsuit there. More banks have been backing away from touching anything that smells like crypto, even apparently for corporate bank accounts. So not purely providing connectivity into the payment system for moving customer funds, but even potentially for companies' bank accounts for doing their payroll and accounts payable and stuff. And amidst all this, PayPal has also decided it's time to press pause on its stablecoin ambition. So, I mean, there seems to be a gathering storm, I guess, of regulators sort of poking and pushing back on crypto's unfettered-ish access to the American financial services landscape. I mean, without diving into every one of these individually, because we don't have, you know, a six-hour show, what is sort of your writ large view on what's happening here, takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I think that you laid it out well, right? I mean, I think that regulators are emboldened to say what they actually really think about crypto, right? And some regulators have been uh, pretty aggressively anti-crypto for a while. I think that Gary Gensler and the SEC is a good example of that. Like they they were uh, really kind of off on crypto well in advance of before it was cool to do so. But I think that since the ecosystem has melted down, since you had everything with Celsius and BlockFi and of course FTX, I think that pretty much the entire sort of regulatory apparatus 
apparatus in the U.S. is now pretty firmly aligned against crypto. And they have, I mean, I think Matt Levine talks about this in Bloomberg sometimes, right? Like if you end up in front of a judge and you're making an argument in court, a lot of times the argument you're making is based on sort of what the legal precedence is and like what the limit of regulation is. But it's also based on just like, well, can you demonstrate consumer harm here? Well, yeah, we can. Right now we can demonstrate significant consumer harm. So that's what's changed in crypto. And I think that has emboldened regulators to say, yeah, no, I don't think any of these things are going to fly. And in particular, I think that the dynamic that sort of opened up is this sort of rock and a hard place dynamic for the crypto industry, which is to say, on the one hand, you have the SEC. And the SEC's view is that everything, with the exception of a couple tokens like Bitcoin and ETH that have been sort of uh, grandfathered in, everything else happening in crypto is security, right? And, you know, I'm not going to get into the Howley test and like, is something a security or is it not? I generally tend to believe that most things in crypto are securities. So, you know, things like staking, obviously the crypto lending products like Earn that have sort of blown up and that Coinbase actually never launched because the SEC stopped them from launching it. And then interestingly, Brian Armstrong didn't ever send out a thank you note to the SEC saying, thanks for stopping us from doing that, because that probably would have been a really bad idea. I think all of those are examples of the SEC basically boxing out one side of it and saying, if you want to offer any of these products to investors, they have to be licensed and approved securities, because that's the way that we view pretty much all of these products. On the other end of the continuum, the other way of thinking about it is, well, these packaged products that we're offering, they're not securities, they're banking products, or they're sort of savings accounts, or, you know, they're sort of banking adjacent products that, you know, sure, have some sort of crypto assets wrapped in underneath them, but they should really be thought of more as banking products. The problem on that side of the equation is, and this is where the hard place comes in, banking regulators are not for that at all, right? And uh, there was a brief moment in time when Brian Brooks was running the OCC, and there were a couple crypto companies that started to kind of sneak through and become sort of approved crypto banks with their own charters. Obviously, Anchorage Digital made it the furthest along and actually did end up getting approval. But, you know, Brian Brooks was only at the OCC for eight months. And after he left, um, the new acting comptroller of the OCC has a very different opinion about the sort of compatibility of crypto and banking. And they and other banking regulators have basically come out and said, in not so many words, we don't really view crypto as being something that's compatible with being a licensed bank. And so, you know, we're not necessarily going to say you can't do anything in crypto, but if you want to custody crypto assets, if you want to bank a bunch of businesses that work in the crypto space, if you want to offer sort of crypto investing to your retail customers directly, we're not going to view that super favorably because we don't really view that as being compatible with a safe and sound financial services industry, right? So they're coming at it more from a safety and soundness perspective as opposed to a investor customer protection standpoint. But the net of it is that on the one hand, you have banking regulators saying, look, crypto can't touch the banking industry at all. We're not going to let that happen. And to the extent that it happens, we're going to risk weight those assets so much that it's going to basically make it impractical for you to do this. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the SEC saying, hey, if you're not regulated by banks, you're offering a security. And if it's an unlicensed security, we're going to come after you. And so there's just very little room in the middle 
to operate anymore. And I think that's why a lot of the news stories that you referenced, Jason, have these crypto companies kind of saying, well, we're prepared to take this to court. We're prepared to sue these regulators. We're prepared to take this as far as we need to. And I kind of get the sense reading between the lines that they're taking that stance because their back really is against the wall and they don't really have a lot more wiggle room or like places to go. Does that make sense? I think that you and I probably share 99% of the same opinion on sort of the overall story here. But it really feels like the crypto project, and before anyone shows up in my mentions, I'm aware there's, you know, different cryptocurrencies and sort of different points of view within crypto world of, you know, what, what the use cases are and what the point is, etc. But it feels like broadly, the goal is get as many people in as possible, because that is supportive of the number going up, the price going up. And what is the key way to get more people to be able to access crypto instead of having everyone have to sign up for Coinbase or MetaMask and Celsius, get it into something they're already using. And that's why you started to see crypto pop up in PayPal, in Venmo, in Cash App. And I think, you know, writ large, what you're seeing now across both state and federal regulators, across securities and banking regulators, is a moderately, I would say, overdue mm-hmm. and moderately aggressive pushback being like, no, like what you're offering like does not belong here inside the banking regulatory perimeter. You know, do I think that it's going to be banned, be outlawed, go away entirely? No, I don't think that that's you know, where this is going to end up. But I do think, you know, the fallout, you know, particularly of FTX, but it's not, you know, it's not the only data point has given today's regulators and and who knows, right, this could change in whatever, two years time, Mm -hmm. but has given the current regulators the ammunition to say, no, like this does not belong in this part of the banking and financial services system. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, it comes back to sort of an interesting question, which is like, how big is crypto and how big should crypto be, right? Because to an extent, I always think about Coinbase in this respect, right? Like Coinbase would be fine, if all they wanted to do was help consumers buy and sell Bitcoin and ETH and a couple other sort of tokens, right? Like if that was the sort of limits of their ambition and what they were trying to do, I think there's room from a regulatory perspective to do that, right? It's like you're doing commodities, right? You're helping people buy and sell commodities. It's a fairly simple business. It's probably somewhat cyclical and that when prices are going up, you're going to have more activity. And when they're going down, you're going to have less activity. But companies that are in the crypto space can figure out how to do that. The interesting thing, though, is when you look at like the information that Coinbase provided when they were getting ready to IPO and go public, and this is how everyone in the crypto space talks, they talk about we're going to build the new financial services ecosystem. Like we're going to build an entirely new infrastructure for doing everything in financial services. And they talk this way because they have investors that need to see these sort of massive, massive returns on these huge visions attacking these giant TAMs, right? Like the vision with crypto really since I think VCs started pouring money into the space has been, we're going to build a new alternative financial services infrastructure that's going to go well beyond 
just, you know, buying and selling commodities into providing bank accounts and ways to move money and ways to do remittances and ways to do lending. And this is going to be the new way that consumers globally build and share wealth. That's the vision. Mm-hmm. And Again, you can totally understand it from a VC perspective. This is why, by the way, anything crypto or Web3, they always talk about onboarding the next billion users into crypto, right? They, they talk in those terms because that's the vision is we're trying to onboard this new set of users, billions of users into this global ecosystem. And I think you make a really good point, Jason, which is the current crop of regulators post FTX basically looks at that vision and that statement and goes, nah, we're not going to do that. Like that's, we're not going to do that. That's not going to happen. We regulate the financial services ecosystem that we have today and feel free to do whatever you're going to do, but just know that it's either a security or a bank account and you can't have a bank account. So that's going to be the way it's going to be. And I think that in the absence of a more supportive regulatory environment, again, I don't know that that sort of core commodities trading and investing business goes away. I don't know that it has to or that it should, but the ambitions to grow it beyond that seem to be increasingly getting cut off in all of these different ways. And I honestly, I don't really see maybe until the environment changes and the sort of regulatory opinion on all this stuff changes, I don't really see a clear way forward in any direction will be interesting at a certain point you had segments of you know u.s crypto universe appearing to to embrace regulation in my cynical opinion because of the cloak of legitimacy that came with it right i always i still laugh when i see crypto related sites or products talk about how they're you know regulated because they have a money transmitter license and they put like a fincen seal like really like front and center on their site and it's like uh that does not mean well i understand why you're doing that but like a consumer seeing that is is probably not giving them an accurate impression of the level of regulation that you're under but yeah i mean given the sort of broad pushback. You're right. I don't see what the path forward here is. And it it apparently is uh, likely going to be in court. uh, That is the path forward. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and perhaps a number of entities deciding not to operate in the US market, right? I mean, you saw that with, I want to say it was like Nexo, which was like the first known CFPB investigation of a crypto company. And ultimately, Nexo said, thanks, but no thanks, and chose to leave. Right. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up, because I think and this is my last sort of comment on this whole thing. But I have to say, one other sort of talking point that drives me truly crazy in the crypto space is, well, um, we need to have responsible regulation here. Otherwise, it's just going to push crypto into other parts of the world where it's like unregulated or whatever. And like, do you really want crypto and the sort of new financial services infrastructure to get built outside the US? Like, that'll mean we're not as competitive and like we'll fall behind and whatever. And it's like, honestly, spare me. Like, spare me that argument. I have no time at all for that. Like, if you can't argue why what you're building is a sort of positive step forward for regular consumers and retail investors in the markets that you're trying to operate in. Like if you can't sell that in the markets you're operating in, don't scare me with the specter of, oh, this is going to go get built somewhere else. So it's better if we have it here. Like that's not a good argument. Like just because, you know, someone will build it somewhere else where regulation is not as intense is not an argument for letting it be built here. You know what that reminds me of, which it's a little bit of an unfair comparison, but (laughs) in classic payday 
lending talking point was, you know, if you don't do it legally, like they're going to go get money from a loan shark. So mm. like you should definitely allow us to run this <laughs> payday lending business because the alternative is like unregulated, you know, mob style lending. I, I can't comment on to what degree that is true or not true, <laughs> but the logic of the argument definitely feels like there's some parallel there. Oh, man. Well, I totally agree. With that, do you want to uh, end with a couple of quick can't let it goes? Yeah, let's do it. Why don't you go first? Sure. So um, not unrelated to what we were just talking about, but there was a, a really interesting story that caught my eye a couple weeks ago in TechCrunch, uh, the title of which was Former Gemini CTO Launches Fierce, a high-yield finance super app. And... Um, you know, I'm fine with any uh, new sort of neobanks. I actually kind of think that the fintech ecosystem has cooled on B2C fintech and neobanks maybe a little too much. And I actually do think there is some sort of unexplored room to create value there. However, I will say that Fierce, as it was described in this TechCrunch article, was sort of surprisingly naive, I guess would be the word I would use. They have an ambition to create a, a super app, which is not unusual in the, the fintech uh, space. Everyone, I think, wants to create a super app. We've talked about that before. And to do that, Fierce is launching a FDIC-insured checking account that has a high yield. It's like a 4.25%, which is certainly very, very high for a checking account. I think functionally what that means is they're going to be sort of negotiating to give back basically any sort of margin they have on that product in order to acquire customers, which is a fine strategy. It also has sort of integrated fractional stock trading, as well as, you know, a plan eventually to add in a credit card and maybe crypto investing, which is funny that they don't already have crypto investing, given that the founder of the company is the former CTO of Gemini. But, you know, it's just really interesting because one of the quotes from the story was that this uh, founder of the company, former chief technology officer, officer at Gemini said that one of the things that struck him about working in cryptocurrency was the power of the customer. And that if you do a great job on the product build, it creates a great relationship. And that that's the foundation that you really want to start to build. And that's something that they learned in crypto, and that they want to now bring back in traditional finance. And um, I got to say, that is just really, really, really not insightful at all about what it takes to succeed in the fintech space. I don't know if Fierce is going to succeed or not. They just raised a $10 million seed round, which is sort of an eye-poppingly large amount for a seed round in this current environment. But I don't see anything in that statement or in this product that suggests to me that they have any understanding of what we've been doing in fintech for the last 10 years, right? Like, we know about the power of the customer. We know about building a great wedge product that allows you to then attract customers. And as you were saying earlier, Jason, like, expand into other product sets and increase your LTV over time. Like, that's a playbook we know. We invented that, right? And by the way, that's also not a new concept in financial services. Universal banking is exactly that, right? Offer sort of a core product like Capital One used to back in the day, and then expand outwards and have a whole universal banking model where you offer lots of products. We've been doing this for decades in financial services. None of that is new. And I have to say that like, when people say this is a thing we learned in the crypto ecosystem, and now we're bringing it back to traditional financial services, and we're bringing it back, and it didn't say this in the story, of course, but we're bringing it back largely because crypto is now a really unfun place to build. 
And we think that fintech thing that we used to sort of make fun of as being boring is actually now kind of interesting again. And we want to come back to that. Like, I'm seeing this increasing trend of what I'm calling crypto refugees, which are like founders or executives that were operating in the crypto space are not having fun there anymore for obvious and understandable reasons and are now sort of coming into fintech or I imagine coming into healthcare or artificial intelligence or these other sort of fields. And I'm fine with that, right? Like I, I want as many talented and uh, sort of enthusiastic people building in the space as possible. But please spare me the lessons that you learned in crypto that you're bringing back to us, because I think probably by and large, we're okay without them. So that's my rant. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> in, I guess mine is also uh, somewhat on a allegedly high yield related topic. People who follow me on Twitter may have seen some conversation about this one about a week ago. There's a company, Zara Financial, which purports to give its users 3% fixed interest per month. So, I mean, if you do the math on that, I guess it would be slightly above 36% on an APY basis, which doesn't sound like a real thing. <laughs> it also, in a couple of places on its website, referenced FDIC insurance, as you do. And uh, last week, the FDIC sent the gentleman who runs this company a sternly worded letter. But all that letter really asked him to do was cease and desist from using misleading FDIC language, which I guess my, my can't let it go here is like, it's almost certain that this company is an outright scam or Ponzi scheme. I actually called the number listed on the website and spoke with whoever is owning or, or running this company, who told me that he is in the process of, quote, becoming a direct member of the FDIC, oh? which I'm not really sure what that means, <laughs> and that they've already filed paperwork to become a bank, which I did look both in state and national uh, license applications. I did not find one, uh, nor FDIC. It is amazing that you actually checked and looked because like that is so transparently a lie. I, I did. I looked. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I like to cross all my T's, dot my I's. And when I asked, you know, where customer funds are currently held, he said they have a lot of banks and specifically name-checked uh, Green Dot and U.S. Bank and many oh. <laughs> other different ones. Wow. So I'm going to go out on a limb uh, and say this company is probably not legitimate. And I guess the part of this I can't let go of is the FDIC, like, the action that was taken here was, like, you can't use FDIC language on your website. It right. wasn't, you know like shutting down this likely Ponzi scheme, which as a you know observer seems a little frustrating. So yeah, that's what I can't let go of. Well, if there are any regulators listening to this that have the power to do something a little bit more than just get them to change the language on their website, that would be great. Uh, in general, if people follow Jason on Twitter, they'll know that he's a magnet for finding this stuff. And uh, as he said, he crosses all the uh, T's and dots all the I's. 
I guess we should uh, leave it there for today. I think is the next episode we're recording going to be us in Vegas if you show up this time? I I promise I will. I promise. I This is like end of March. There's no way there's going to be some like massive snowstorm or like freakish <laughs> cold snap that like freezes the plane to the tarmac. Like there's there's no way, right? Like I don't live in that terrible of a place. I, I should make it. I should not have said that. I'm actually going to be traveling to Vegas from my hometown of Chicago, which anyone who's had the misfortune of flying through O'Hare in the winter knows is a dicey proposition. So if I end up getting <laughs> stuck, remind me that I made this joke. Got it. Okay. Well, everyone listening, uh, take your bets now for uh, if both of us will make it or if one of us will make it. But the plan is for us both to be recording our this next podcast live from uh, FinTech Meetup in Vegas, where we will also be speaking. And we hope to run into many of you in person. But until then, um, thanks for listening. And Jason, thanks as always. Yeah, I will see you there. Thank you.